morning. It's on, he says. Okay, there we are. All right. So, as this session of uh, my coming to you and bringing God's word to you is coming to a close, and I'm so happy that I get to look forward to another couple of weeks in the month of March. I would ask for you to pray for me over the next couple of weeks. Uh, One, we have a drill next weekend and an opportunity to uh, to be present, to be the presence of God, which is a pretty high calling, to be the presence of God with soldiers who are coming on drill weekend. Unfortunately, in the state of Maine and uh, even other New England states, we are the least churched, uh, one of the least churched states in the nation. I think we actually rate number five, even though we've been, I think, in Barna's polls up around number one or number two. But we're still there. Pray for the presence of God to make a difference amongst our soldiers. And then the following weekend, I'll be doing a uh, uh, I'll be participating with Chaplain Phil Dow in a, a marriage retreat at the Lucerne Inn. And again, we'll be talking about uh, we'll be talking about the very things of the gospel, although, you know, because we're in a pluralistic environment, we can't necessarily say, you know, chapter and verse and preach the gospel. But we're preaching the gospel anyway, because we're talking about marriage. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church and and a picture of the relationship that we have. And one of the things that I will have a chance to talk about is forgiveness and what real forgiveness is. And that forgiveness always, if it's going to be truly called forgiveness, always opens the door for reconciliation. And it's not something we can we can conjure up. It's something that has to be has to be created in us. You know, the righteousness that God requires is something that it's not in our DNA. As a matter of fact, it's hard work for one reason and one reason only. We don't have it in us. So be in prayer for me as we uh, uh, roll into the next couple of weeks. Uh, And also I'll be at uh, I'll have one Sunday at Clifton United Baptist who had just lost their pastor as well. Much need. Much hurt. So before we uh, let's let's go to the word of God. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 55. And yes, I'm going to read. It's only 13 verses. It's the entire chapter. Isaiah chapter 55. Hear the word of God. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good. And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear to me and come to me. 
Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know will run to you. Because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God that for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that comes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Lord, May your word go forth this morning. And Lord, may, may it come out of my mouth. Lord, would you work in our hearts that which is pleasing in your sight. And may we go forth from here more ready and more willing from now on to live for you. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. So, a question... What is the gospel? My answer to that is everything between these two covers. Between Genesis chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22 is all the gospel. It is news that changes everything. It is the entire word of God. It is God's covenant with his people. It is an audacious and impossible promise that is coming true and has come true. It is a power. I, from cover to cover, God's word is the story of dead men walking. In the movie, uh, Dead Men Walking, the lead character is on death row and is brought 
from his cell down the hallway to the death chamber where he will be electrocuted. Thus, he is a dead man walking. This scene is also a picture of each one of us. We are all walking down the hallway to our death. In fact, we live from cradle to grave on death row, so to speak. However, God's justice and our demand, our sin demands something far worse than the electric chair. We deserve the eternal wrath of God. Amazingly, as we are taken down that hallway, we discover that we've been brought into a great courtroom instead of the death chamber. The correction officer, the jailer, shuts the door behind us and we look up and we see a very impressive looking judge sitting behind the bench. And he says to us, you know that you are on your way to the electric chair, don't you? And each of us looks at each other and looks at him and nods in acknowledgement. Yes, yes, we are. Well, he says, I'm going to pardon you. Would you like to be pardoned for your many crimes and your many sins? Would you like to be forgiven so that there's no more guilt, no more condemnation for your crimes? And of course, each of us says, yes, yes, your honor, we want that. That's that's exactly what we want. And at that very moment, the lights dim, they flicker, and the judge explains, someone who loves you more than you can dream or imagine has just been electrocuted in your place. He goes on, consider yourself pardoned by the power that is bestowed upon me. You are forgiven. Now, this is the first part of what we call in in the Christian faith justification. This is the first part where we have forgiveness, complete and total forgiveness. But there's more. Think of some famous people who have been acquitted or pardoned by the court system. Yet in our minds, many of us still think of them as guilty The pardon or the not guilty verdict did not change our opinion of them. So let's go back to the courtroom and let's look again because the judge looks at us and says, I know that when you leave this courtroom, many people, even among your own family and among your own friends, will consider you still guilty. So I'm not going to merely forgive you. I'm going to give you a gift. And that gift is a new reputation. It's like going into the witness protection program where you get a whole new backstory and a whole new life. You get this new reputation, which means you are completely right. I am declaring that you have no blemish. You have no sin and no guilt. So not only are you pardoned and completely forgiven, but now you are also completely righteous. You will leave this courtroom with a new reputation. This is the second part of justification by faith. A new reputation. The declaration that we are righteous, that we are not only declared not guilty, but we also have a new reputation. 
Therefore, to live out of our justification is to go back constantly to that courtroom scene. Every day we have to keep recognizing that we are pardoned, declared not guilty, and instead declared completely righteous. But there's even one more thing that needs to happen. So we go back to this courtroom scene one more time. There's one other thing the great judge says to us. He says, you've been pardoned and declared right. I'm, I'm going to let you go free. But most people who have been on death row have no one to come home to. Their families have disowned them. Or they've passed on and they have no idea where they are. And the judge says, you've been pardoned, you've been declared right, I'm going to let you go free. You probably don't have a family to go home to. So the judge stands up, takes off his robe, and reveals that underneath that royal, that regal robe of a judge, he's wearing t-shirts, sneakers, and jeans. And he comes down off the bench, puts his arm around you, and says, would you like to come live with me as my children? Would you like to be adopted? I have room for you in my mansion. I will provide everything you will ever need in life. And you will have countless brothers and sisters there who will love you and whom you will love. And I will make you an heir to everything I own. How on earth is that possible? We ask this question. And then the judge explains, I want you to understand that all of this is possible because of my one and only son, Jesus. He lived a perfect life so that you could have his perfect record. He suffered terribly for you and rose again for your justification. All of this he did for you. And for this reason, once I adopt you, I will view you exactly as I do him, sinless and holy. Since you are adopted into my family, I am making you a co-heir with him. What's more, I'm going to give you all the help you need to live in my family. So this great judge has become our father and provides us with yet another person, the Holy Spirit, to indwell us and give us the power to live this new life. The Spirit is the one who will lead you. In the way everlasting. The spirit is the one who will change your DNA, your spiritual DNA, and begin the process of making you righteous. Folks, I don't know about you. I don't need a new filter. I need a spirit. I need a change that makes me not need to be filtered. Oh, I need filters for now. And praise God, I think I have some. But I don't need to be covered. Uh, I mean, I need to be covered by him as he is changing my heart. And the more, for example, as we become more and more secure in this truth about us, We will be able to listen to criticism, even unfair criticism, without having to prove that we are right. We'll be able to listen in order to see what we can learn, and we can listen in order to see how we can help 
the other person who is criticizing us. And we can actually be more concerned about them than about ourselves. We will no longer have to prove that we are right and okay because we identify with a God who is right and with whom we are secure. Folks, this is the word of God. This is what the Isaiah is talking about, that it's an absurd, shocking story. Well, here's Israel's problem. They had forsaken God's word. And in Jesus' day, they hadn't done much better. As a matter of fact, they had changed it altogether. Oh, they didn't start out this way. They, they didn't say, hmm, what can we do to change the word of God? No, they said, how can we get to the point where we never have to go back into captivity? So they started making rules about the rules and adding to it. They were, this, these were the seeds of rebellion that instead of trusting the word of God, these are the same seeds of rebellion that were in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve assumed their own authority over God's word and added to it. And folks, we're not that much different. We too have a tendency to question the word of God. We are not that much different. If Satan can get us as individuals or as a local church to question the word of God, he has already won the battle. If he can get us to justify our own sin and judge the sins of others, he has won. But the way back is to embrace the word of God and what it says about us. The word of God says that we are worse off than we think. But the power of the word of God is his Holy Spirit who changes us. But if we allow ourselves to question God's word, we will eventually forsake it altogether. So the solution is to forsake the wisdom of the world, to embrace the word of God and embrace radical change. The word of God is a promise of perfect righteousness and a spirit of sonship with God if we would but simply run to him even in the midst of our rebellion and our treason. God ratified this word by raising Jesus from the dead. God sent his word to become a baby, to live and die for us. And you can take his promise of perfect peace and perfect righteousness to the bank because God gave us a sign that only he could accomplish. He raised Jesus from the dead. So though we have committed many acts of treason and, so, and against God's sovereignly imposed covenant, his word and his blessings are infinitely valuable and are totally free. So I want to talk about this, this passage this morning in the few minutes we have remaining. Under three headings, the compelling word, the authoritative word, and the powerful word. And I pray this morning that this study, that this dive into what Isaiah says about God's word would thrill your hearts. That you would feel God's pull on your heart to love him with all of your being. And that your hearts would be so full of his love for you that you can't help but be changed by it. So, the word of God, a compelling word, an authoritative word, and a powerful word. So, let's talk about the compellingness of God's word. 
He says, come. Everyone who's thirsty, come to the waters. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Listen to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself, not with bread and water, but with rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. God's word is compelling. It says to come. It also says that it's the right price. <clears throat> no, if you don't have money, come, buy. Not on credit, just come. Without money, without price. <clears throat> Hear that your soul will live, it says. God's, will, God's word is compelling. It's the right price. It's, 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 he says, come. And what is he inviting us to? It's a rich feast. He's talking about wine and milk, not just the bare necessities of life, but the Michelin $350 per person course, per, per course dining experience. Well, excuse me, for a five course. I did look this up because I want to go to a Michelin restaurant someday just to experience it. Each course paired with the finest wines of heaven and earth. A dining experience of the rich quality. Eat what is good, he says. The finest aged steaks cooked to perfection with mm, perfectly pan-seared scallops on the side. Are you hungry yet? Delight yourself in rich food. Folks, you couldn't buy this meal if you mortgaged every mansion on Mount Desert Island. And And for this reason... It's unreasonable for us to reject it. He says, why spend your money on that which is not food? Why would you go to McDonald's when you could have Ruth Chris? Why spend your money for that which is not bread, he says, and your labor for that which is not, does not satisfy? In other words, who does that? Compared to the rich dining experience offered by God in his gospel, in his word, everything else is like eating out of the septic tank. So here's my question this morning. Is God's word, his gospel, your treasure? Have you settled, for instance... For the world's definition of forgiveness. Some here might have ever heard the name Scott Stanley. And he's developed, uh, he works out of the University of, Color- University of Denver, I think it is. Uh, and has developed a, a Christian marriage enrichment program. And we're going to be delivering that to our soldiers uh, uh, in a couple of weeks, not the Christian pers- part of it, but it's the marriage enrichment. But I've had to call Scott Stanley on his idea of forgiveness because he will tell you that forgiveness is not for the benefit of the offending party. He will say that forgiveness is for your own benefit so that you don't waste away. And that's it's at least as true as far as he goes. But that's not 
biblical forgiveness. It's, forgiveness is not about you so that you can move on. Biblical forgiveness is hmm, God has never forgiven anyone without reconciling them to himself. Let me say that again. God has never forgiven anyone without reconciling them. True forgiveness for us broken people always leaves the door open for reconciliation. It may never happen. I'm in a situation right now with members of my former church where reconciliation probably will not happen. I am willing to go to them and say, yep, I pushed too hard. I pushed too hard for change. I allowed people to come in and push too hard for change. I didn't rein them in. And then when we pushed for change, they weren't ready. But at the same time, change needed to happen. And when I was pushed into a corner, I stood on God's word. Did I do it right? I don't know. But reconciliation probably will not take place in this, apart from a resurrection class miracle of God. So, folks, even one who has spent lots of money studying the Word of God, I must confess, sometimes I live as if I've never even opened a Bible. But God's promise is absurdly wonderful. Hear what Jesus said himself. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's Matthew 11, verse 28. Run to him and be honest about it. Run to Jesus and confess the dullness of your heart and your mind. Ask him to make God's word compelling to you. So God's word is compelling. It is also authoritative. He says in verse 3, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Well, what is a covenant? A covenant is, is little more than a contract signed in blood. It cannot be changed except by the one who imposes it. It is not accumulated. God's word is not accumulated over time and revised the documentary theory of how the scripture, especially the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, how that came into being is completely false, blown out of the water by historical archaeology. God's word, every part of it, is a covenantal story of the unfolding of God's covenant with his people. It tells a story of a perfect world, how it got messed up and what God did about it. And how will it look when we are restored in his image? Think about this. The Ten Commandments, right? Instead of thinking of it as, oh, I gotta do this. I gotta, I gotta, um, I gotta stop swearing. I gotta stop saying bad words. Instead of that, think of it this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You will not commit adultery. You will not 
have other gods before me. You, this, is a, this is what true humanity looks like. And if you don't think so, look at the one who perfectly obeyed it. He did it not because it was hard work, but because it was his nature. And that's who the Spirit of God wants us to become. This is God's covenant with us. He's going to make us into the people he wants us to be. He goes on to say, Behold, I made him a witness. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ in future terms. Covenants were witnessed by attested and attested by infallible means. God's miraculous delivery of Israel from Egypt was the ratifying event in the Old Testament. And Jesus' resurrection is the one that ratified the New Testament. He says, I'll make you a leader and a commander for the peoples. He says, behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And they shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Jesus sent out his disciples and by virtue of their authority to to form the church and set up its structure. And he commands us. He sends us out to say, come. And by the authority of God's word, you come. Folks, every one of you that's sitting here, that's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, were compelled by the authority of God's word to come and to embrace the gospel. So God's word is authoritative. It's a command authority with a promise. In verse 7, he says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Why? That he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I don't know about you, but I suspect you're a lot like me and you're slow to forgive. Especially when we have been hurt over and over and over again. But not so with our God. He abundantly pardons. And praise God, he's ready to forgive no matter how great or how numberless our sins are. He says in verse 11, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that for which that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Brothers and sisters, God never speaks or directs to be written empty thoughts. There's not an empty thought. There's not an irrelevant thought in the word of God. It will go forth to do what he intends it to do by his word. He makes alive By his word, he fills needs and then some. And he releases captives from their prisons of their own sinful making. His word creates, commands the storms, and brings the dead to life. Folks, we do not have to be defined by our sin. Instead, let our sin serve us by driving us back to the one who is already who already has the invoice paid in full. Jesus has the invoice for every sin you and I have ever committed or ever will commit. 
and he invites us to the rich feast to join him. It is a higher authority. God's word is authoritative. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. God's word is his covenant given to us in the scriptures. Folks, instead of making excuses for our sin, we should run. Run to him for the abundant pardon. So here's my question. In what way are you tempted? What way am I tempted to disregard any part of God's word? In what way do we try to minimize God's word in our lives? Jesus in this is the David in this passage. God made him a witness to the eternal covenant in order to reconcile us to himself. How do we know it's true? Because God raised him from the dead. The only man to ever walk out of a grave like nothing ever happened and continue to live even to this present moment. Are you letting the authority of God's word call you to confession and repentance? So God's word is compelling. It's authoritative. And finally, it's powerful. First off, let's take a look. It's a gentle soaking power. In verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it sprout bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Folks, we need to keep a long-term vision. Don't let a snapshot of where we are right now, either individually or as a group, define us. Isaiah wrote over a period of 36 years. We have a case study that God has given us of a church in, in the New Testament, Ephesus. Over the 40 years of recorded existence of the church in Scripture, it had to be called to repentance no less than four, three times. And finally, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who said, repent and recover. Remember, repent, recover, or I'm going to blow out your candlestick. Isaiah wrote over a period of 36 years. Imagine that. 36 years of ministry in which Isaiah preached the word of God faithfully, and yet he didn't see the fruit of his ministry. It would be another 600 years before the advent of Christ and Pentecost. So, Southwest Harbor Congregational Church never, and I say this to myself too, never Never grow weary of hearing the word of God proclaimed and never grow weary of soaking yourself in it and proclaiming it. As we heard last Sunday, sometimes the most powerful evangelism tool we have is our repentance. So it's a gentle and soaking power. It is also an unstoppable power. He says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It's also a nature-changing power. And this, this, is, this is, it gripped me when I first read this. 
It says instead, in verse 13, it says, Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Do you, do you see what this passage is saying? Let me ask you this. <clears throat> what happens to your backyard that may be full of briars, may be full of thistles or burdocks or whatever might be out there? What happens when the rain comes? What happens after the snow melts? I don't know about your backyard, but I get more thistles. I get more burdocks. I get more thorns. Not so the Word of God. God's Word changes the nature of the vegetation and landscape in this passage. And He changes our nature by His Word and by His Spirit. God's Word creates, God's Word heals. God's word commands the storm. God's word feeds us. God's word offers us hope for real change, not just better filters to cover what's inside of our hearts. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that if we commit ourselves to the rich treasure of studying and living out the gospel. I commend you for doing this Jen Wilkins study yet again, ladies. Good stuff. My wife is doing this with our two of our daughters. Uh, having a Bible study, mostly over Zoom, because they live in faraway places. What Jen is doing is bringing out the Christ-centeredness of Scripture. Good stuff. We commit ourselves to obeying the gospel, which is simply run to him. Run to him with your, with your struggles. Run to him with your sin. Run to him in the midst of your sin. Listen, you don't clean yourself up and then come to God. You come to him and let him clean you. That's what your baptism symbolizes is that you can't clean yourself. You have to be cleaned by him. If we would do this, we will see changes in our sphere of influence in the footprint of this church and all over Mount Desert Island. The question is this, will we be a people completely submitted to the word of God or will we question it and reject it? God's word is compelling, authoritative, and powerful. The spirit and the bride say come. Because it's the spirit that is producing a longing within us to say, come Lord Jesus, we need you. We're so broken without you. If we live the word of God in our daily repentance with one another and with those around us. And folks, if if you have no idea how to do this, go to your elders. Come to me. I'd love to point you in a direction of how you can learn to apply the gospel daily to your life. And no, I have not arrived. I am not doing it perfectly. Preach the gospel to yourself. 
This is the main reason to learn, like you're going to learn in the Jen Wilkins study, how to handle God's word. This is why folks like Bill Johnson are doing the Leadership Development Network and why Grace Seminary exists. Along with all kinds of good courses you can take online for free. Teach yourself how to read and apply God's word in confidence. So, does God's law convict you that you are worthy of the death penalty? And do you look to Jesus as the end of your conviction and death sentence? And more than that, is he your big brother because you've been adopted? into the family of God and forevermore are seen as perfectly righteous in his sight. Are you grateful every day that your sins are no longer counted against you? Preach the gospel to yourself and to those around you. Trust the word of God. God's word is compelling. It is authoritative. It is powerful. It is the only hope for this church. It's the only hope for Southwest Harbor. And it's the only hope for the state of Maine. If not for the word of God, there would be no repentance. There would only be striving harder. But the word of God is a miraculous power that changes those who embrace it. Abandon the worldly wisdom. And run to God and his word today. Let us pray. Lord, in these moments, I pray that we have lifted up your word, the power of your word. Lord, would you make it real to us? The power of Believing you and resting in your word, resting in the fact that you have not only declared us not guilty, you have declared us perfectly righteous. You've given us a new reputation. And then you came and you said, hey, come to my house. Live in my house. There are many mansions Jesus said, and that you go to prepare a place for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The spirit and the bride say, come. Rescue us from this present evil age. Lord, thank you for your salvation. That includes all of these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.